everyone, my name is Lydia. This is Carla. My name is Tanya Ball. And this is... No Librarians Allowed. So today we're very happy to have Tanya Ball join us for a conversation about all things librarianship and Indigenous issues. We're just very happy, so thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, so maybe Tanya will we'll introduce you and give a bit of background. So as I understand, you are an academic resident librarian at U of A Libraries. Yes. yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what you do there? Okay, so I'm an academic librarian resident, but what I do there is kind of different from all of the other residents. And I say that with like a little tiny <laughs> because it's kind of a big question mark. So my specialization is in Indigenous initiatives. So the big project that I was kind of hired to coordinate is, I guess we call it the Ithaca SNR Indigenous Project, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Essentially what that is, is it's an organize, Ithaca SNR is an organization in New York and they are organizing this gigantic research project with about 13 universities across Turtle Island or across North America. So each university is pretty much doing the same research project with the same questions, the same everything else, and it was really framed by Deborah Lee, who's a librarian in the University of Saskatchewan, who literally wrote the book mm -hmm. on Indigenous librarianship. <laughs> um, so we've been really working closely with Deborah. And so my job is coordinating the U of A version of it. So I've been going around and interviewing Indigenous studies scholars around campus on how they do research, what it means to be a researcher within um, the Native Studies faculty, and also how we can really improve library services. So I've been doing a lot of that. <laughs> uh, that comes with, you know, it comes with a lot of event planning, weirdly mm -hmm. enough. Yeah. So I plan a lot of events. So I did the Writing Stick Conference. I mm -hmm. helped out with that earlier. In, Which was amazing. Oh, <laughs> it was like a year ago now. Yeah. Holy moly. Uh, so Writing Stick Conference, and then there's the Making Meaning Conference, or Making Meaning Symposium, which I helped a lot with um, organization and logistics and things outside there's so many things that i'm doing i don't know <laughs> i do lots of work with scenes and with um comic books there's like a this this i don't know what i'll call it. it's called u school and essentially what that is is they bring students from at-risk communities and they kind of introduce them to the university so they call like they call on volunteers around campus to, to get the students to say hey what are you guys doing so I created this graphic novel program and got the kids and taught, basically taught them how to do the research process through using comic books, superheroes, and talking about indigenous graphic novels and what those actually look like, which is amazing. Yeah, it's really, really fun. And I guess I've been asked by Tony Samick, she's the chair of the library school, mm -hmm. to facilitate a course on Indigenous librarianship within a Canadian context. So I'll be doing that with Kayla Larson as well. So it's the first official three credit course that is just on Canadian Indigenous librarianship. Yeah. That's great. I remember when I saw, I think, an um, announcement of that, I thought yeah. that's probably pretty unique, right? There's not a lot of that in Canada. No. Yeah. Well, the way that we planned it is we planned it really grassroots. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, both of you have been to library school, obviously, so there's a lot of focus on theoretical stuff. 
which is great because you need that background, right? But what we're finding more and more, especially with the, re the release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the TRC, because all the libraries are really wanting to get on board with that, that they're basically, the expectations for staff is really high and they're just not trained for it and they're not ready for it. So what we were doing in the development of this course was asking students that have recently graduated or who are in library school or who are working within the local context of what are you being expected to know and what's missing. So our big final project actually is um, whether you're interested in public librarianship or academic librarianship, if you're interested in academia, then we're going to ask students to develop an exhibit using and showcasing the collection that we have and then doing a presentation with that. If you're interested in public librarianship, we're going to ask them to create um, a program on like an indigenous focused program that can be made for kids, adults, whoever. And Kayla and I are basically going to hold everyone's hand the whole way through because, oh, that's another thing that I forgot. Uh, there's so many things going no, on. I already have 10 million questions. About <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. Exactly. so I'll add one more okay. thing and then you just interject <laughs> me with questions. Sure. It's totally fine. So um, another thing that I kind of just got thrown into, because stuff like that happens to me all the time sure. for random reasons, um, is that we had this really big town hall, which essentially like all of the librarians kind of came together and we wanted a reconciliation-focused piece, which I was asked to help out with, and that actually kind of spawned further conversation. So I basically went to most of the units on campus, so the different library units like Bruce Peel Special Collections, the Digital Initiatives Unit, those types of things, just to uh, foster conversation about reconciliation and see where the kind of gaps are. It's totally unofficial research. It's just kind of something, and I was writing the report up this week, so I'm thinking about it. But um, the number one concern is staff anxiety surrounding mm. Indigenous initiatives, mm. which is the biggest piece, and it's also the scariest piece, speaking of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like where we as Indigenous librarians kind of need to focus our attention on, um, I don't I like training, whatever that is, I don't know, mm. but kind of bringing people forward so they're not so scared and worried about making mistakes. Is that kind of what you found the anxiety centers around is just not knowing what to do or doing the wrong thing like in a in a service context or in some other context definitely I mean that's where there's kind of like a parallel right between um, new digital initiatives yes. right because you're always worried about doing the wrong thing what if something goes wrong what if mm -hmm. I make a mistake and it's natural to be worried about things that you're not used to right but um, yeah definitely a lot about that and about also time Time is a big thing <laughs> for people. Sorry, so time to dedicate to learning about issues and being prepared for a good service. So incorporating yes. that into your workflow, is that what you mean? Definitely. So time was the biggest thing because, I mean, as librarians, um, we often are asked to focus on outputs, right, mm -hmm. and deliverables. Mm -hmm. And usually that kind of comes in this weird, tangible form, but... In indigeneity, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, in, if you ask someone, what does indigenous librarianship even mean? I'd probably say I have no idea. But <laughs> um, what the basis of what it should be is about, um, there's a Cree word, it's called wahokuin, which means relationships. So it's all about creating relationships and having that personal one-on-one -on -one FaceTime with them. 
can't remember where I was going with this. But how do you measure Oh, yeah, time, idea? time, time, time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it just, it, when, when you're expected to do all these deliverables, you're kind of worried, okay, well, if I spend this amount of time learning and dedicating to this, then what's my boss going to say or what am I going to put on my year-end report, mm-hmm. right? Which is totally a legit concern. But on the flip side of the coin, when people say that, to me, it's kind of a weird space to be in because I am a self-identified Indigenous person, right? So when people say that to me, it it, it seems, and I know that it's not their fault because there's all these weird societal things that are kind of floating around, but to me, it sounds like they're saying, I don't have time to make you feel comfortable because that's what it kind of is because... When you clock in in a day, you clock in from 9 to 5, right? And at 5 o'clock, you can go home, watch Netflix, do whatever you want. But for me, at 5 o'clock, I still am me. I'm still an Indigenous person. And so things that are happening, whether it's at the university or like bigger concepts like the um, Stanley case, for example, and with Tina Fontaine, like people clocked out and they didn't think about it, but that affects you. So much, and there's so much emotional labor that takes along to that. It's emotional labor and librarianship always go hand in hand, which is so weird. Yep. Yeah. Sure, and I was going to say, well, in many ways it is your job. Like, you are literally the one of the librarians. Are you the only librarian uh, dedicated to sort of Indigenous services and... and, um, I guess, goals, or there's a couple, right? No, not at all. Actually, that's what's really good uh, at the university is that, okay, so this is an interesting stat for you, is that across all of Canada, there are 30 self-identified or under 30 self-identified Indigenous librarians, and within the University of Alberta, most of them are kind of working there. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so there's Kayla Larson, McLeod, Gabrielle LaMontagne, Sheila LaRock. Oh gosh, I can name a handful, right? Sorry, but it sounds like so much of your job is sort of, as you said, preparing staff and supporting, you know, making it um, broader across the system so that everyone's educated. But in many ways, it's not fair to put the pressure of educating all your other colleagues on one or two, you know, a handful of individuals, right? So everyone has a responsibility. And so it sounds like some people do say, well, I don't have time to incorporate this into my work because I'm responsible for X, Y, Z, and this is an extra thing to yeah. add, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I guess I'm just trying to comment on how unfair it is. You know, we talked about emotional labor and, mm-hmm. yeah, all kinds of labor that goes into, yeah, just educating and making this part of the conversation, part of expectations of what it means to be a contemporary librarian. Yeah. So. Exactly, but it just, I don't know, it seems like a negative kind of framework to put it that way, which, you know what, it's true, I mean, I have some really bad days, because sometimes the microaggressions and the racism that people, I mean, we go to library school and they pump, oh, libraries are neutral spaces, but they're not, they're really not, they're not inclusive to everybody, there's so many barriers that you can't, I can't even name them all, but it, it is a lot of work, it's a lot of, a lot of work, but... I think that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, mm-hmm. like this is what I, I really like doing the educating piece, mm-hmm. but definitely within larger organizations, not just universities, but public libraries, whatever, 
there needs to be systems in place that really focuses on mental health <laughs> and having community because community that's where you find your healing and that's where you find your support whereas like everyone is so busy in their day-to-day -day time that I, I guess it kind of just falls down the wayside but it really should be put in place that's well we'd like to take this time on record I guess on recording <laughs> to to say that not only I think, well, by virtue of you being here and, and having this conversation, but also our colleagues uh, in the profession, pass on words of encouragement and support and, and thank you for taking the time to, to say, to, to talk about the fact that neutrality is a myth. Like mm -hmm. I, we, we are beginning, I think, to question that idea in, in the profession, yeah. not evenly across, you know, even Canada, but overall those conversations, those ideas are starting to happen. And we need people like you, <laughs> uh, but we also need others to sort of buy into the conversation to, to, um, find that it's important so thanks for continuing you're no. saying oh I feel too negative and you, you're a very positive person but um yeah you, we gotta keep doing it I guess yeah so. exactly so you gotta find that community which would be that's why it'd be really hard for me to kind of leave the place that I'm at right mm -hmm. now because I have such a big support system where I'm at and I know that just from past experiences and other places that I've worked I mean, oftentimes I find myself in a situation where I am the only Indigenous person in the room, and <laughs> it's just exhausting trying to defend yeah. your existence all the time. <laughs> so sometimes uh, I just, I guess I find myself just going into maybe Pemina Hall, which is um, where the Faculty of Native Studies is, or attending talks just to be around people that I know I don't have to explain myself to, which is so powerful and it's so important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely... <laughs> If I could recommend anything, representation. <laughs> we need a lot more diverse representation mm -hmm. because being that or one of the, I definitely am not the first Indigenous librarian, but being in library school and being the only one is it's exhausting, mm -hmm. especially because I'm Métis and I don't mm -hmm. look like an Indigenous person, right? That people say things to you mm -hmm. that aren't the kindest uh, because they think that you're a different kind of human being right so it's I mean it's not an excuse at all but it's exhausting because mm -hmm. you're like I could correct you right now but I just I don't have it in me yeah. today is not a good day <laughs> so what are you um thinking about education and we've talked about kind of library school education for technology and what we mm -hmm. I mean on podcasts but also just many times in our own conversations um about preparing students for working with new technologies with new initiatives what are you what are you hoping that the students who will take the, the new course at SLIS get out of it? Like what are you what are the kind of big things that, that you're hoping to to change or to, to implement in that course? Mm -hmm. The one thing that I've learned, and this is just through like doing sharing circles or facilitating blanket exercises and just general education around what it means to be indigenous whatever and even the word indigenous is problematic because we're not all the same mm -hmm. like we're there's so many different cultures within that one gigantic word right and within academia and I mean this is more of a systemic kind of thing because academic academia is a very colonial system right it's really focused on that mental piece so they're saying think 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 publish 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 but that's just not how it doesn't, I guess it doesn't make sense within an Indigenous worldview because 
there has to be, it's more holistic, right? You're incorporating your mental, your physical, your emotional, and your spiritual pieces. So in teaching this course, what I would really like to do is, yeah, maybe you need to focus on the brain, but you also need to focus on the heart, right? So it's from the, the, the head to the heart and back again. That's so I guess it's more like heart learning, right? So if you learn from the heart and you learn from stories, you're more likely to change. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but a story is so powerful and it affects you on such a human level that it just doesn't seem as superficial when you're looking at a piece of paper and you're like, okay, number, <laughs> here's a stat, okay, yeah, I get it. Whereas if you're experiencing it and you're feeling it and you're working within the community, it's a completely different experience. It was people. You're working with actual people who mm -hmm. you can see and talk to and interact with. And I will stop going on my digital storytelling rant, which is what I normally want to go on. <laughs> which I love it for that reason. But <laughs> that's I that just sounds amazing. And I'm mm -hmm. I wish you so much luck and I'm sure the people who take the course will be so blessed by having that experience and, yeah. and that knowledge. I'm sure that's very different too, as you said. We are so trained to go through, you know, by the time you make it to a graduate program in university, you know how to navigate the academic world. And as you said, focuses on the think, the brain in a jar kind of. And it's true, academia never talks about hunger, isolation, uh, loneliness. Now we're getting some sense of, you know, mental health. Uh, issues that students are facing but essentially the focus is on your yeah mental outputs right yeah. and performance um, so I'm I'm sure that it will be a little bit um, you know challenging to kind of switch gears or, or or try new essentially method of learning right this is mm -hmm. a new way to value knowledge we rarely have space for that in our current education system. So, again, keep fighting yeah. the fight. And, you know, I, I'm really pleased that you brought this idea of, you know, evaluation assessment because we, I think that's a common theme in all of librarianship. We certainly talked about this on a previous episode with the dual pressures on one hand of, you know, community work and, and building relationships with organizations and individuals and having to demonstrate performance and value and what does that look like. And mm -hmm. they're, they're posing ways, right, of, of thinking about what work is, what's the purpose of this work, because often relationships don't go anywhere because they just exist, right? They are there for its own sake, not mm -hmm. to show, as you said, stats. So I'm very pleased that you bring this, this theme and, you know, to measure them, it's almost like a disservice to the whole value of a relationship, right? Yeah. Like, it sh you shouldn't have to defend it. It should stand on its own, but... I don't know. It's, an, it's a new idea to academia, but it's not a new idea to, like, the worldview, right? So it's all about um, just basically having the space to include more voices. I mean, that's, I do lots of consultations and things because I'm, I'm working right now as a subject, a subject liaison within the education department. And I have a lot of consults, people coming in, Indigenous and non-Indigenous students, but they're working within Indigenous research methodologies, or they don't even know that that even exists. They just come in and say, oh, I want to do this like holistic view that incorporates all the different parts of you. Like, oh, you're talking about the medicine wheel. You're talking about indigenous research methodologies, but a lot of times, like students, especially indigenous students, they find themselves having to 
change their essays or pretend that they're someone that they're not mm -hmm. because at the end of the day some professor is going to be marking their papers and if they don't have the exact same worldview then are you going to pass? Maybe, maybe not, right? And that's all about like we were talking about publishing before the recording was on but um, that's the same problem with publishing, especially with the long peer review process. So you spend all this time doing this research and then you send it to a journal. And if you have two blind editors who potentially maybe they have a different worldview from you, your chances of getting accepted to the journal are actually pretty slim. Mm -hmm. We do all this teaching in the library. Like, I don't know if you remember like, this library person going into your undergrad classes sure. and stuff. And we're we're trained to say, oh, check this box off, and then you'll get all the peer-reviewed stuff, the good stuff. When I say that to students, like, okay, you can check this box, but think about your topic. Think about your topic because when you are checking that box, you're silencing a lot of voices, whether they are traditionally, I guess, underrepresented voices, but even with technology and things like that, if people are working with really current technology, if you're going to check off that peer-review process, mm -hmm you are knocking out a lot of really current stuff because of that peer review process. Like it's, I don't know, it could take up to a year or two years and by the time it's actually published in a journal or a book or something, the technology is probably gone or it's moved it comes, on to something else, you know? It comes back to the idea of neutrality again because we, we have this idea of like, oh yeah, the you know, double blind review process and mm -hmm. here are the ones that are, here are the articles that are good because they, they're without context, they're totally neutral they're just evaluated on their work and I think what I find so fascinating is we're we're now looking for that context and we're we're trying to put some of that neutrality in back into its context because we're recognizing how important that is mm -hmm. I love that in a like an education context specifically for ed students but for research methods as well it yeah. it really touches everything and of course you talked about you know the publication side but how many researchers don't even get to that stage so their work is not supported you know asking for grants like just getting the idea out there if, if your way of working doesn't fit with what is tradition and let's face it the academy is built on tradition right <laughs> yeah yeah You're, and it's passed on and th there are reasons for it uh, i'm sure that worked but you're right they excluded so many voices so to have that conversation about what values are imbued in that checkbox, right? It's not just a mere tool that you select. Oh, well, either way is fine. I think we're seeing some discussion that our role as librarians is to bring back that context in question, you know, thinking through all choices, right, mm -hmm. that we navigate and, and hopefully helping students and public library users to have the same kind of critical approach. Exactly, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the Writing Stick Conference that you helped to organize? Oh. Because we're kind of my segue of talking about <laughs> publishing and <laughs> writing and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I was really lucky to attend it last, uh, last summer. It was just fantastic, and I learned so much um, while I was there and heard mm -hmm. excellent stories and, and excellent stats and all of that kind of combined together, but... Can you tell us a little bit about it? All right, I might have to go a little bit back yeah, behind, yeah. <laughs> behind in the storyline. So I was accepted into library school. They had this new program. It was an Indigenous internship program, and I was the first one to be accepted into it. And um, then we have all the other interns afterwards. But for the internship program, they gave me a scholarship, and then they set me up with a working relationship within the university context so they put me into the press and I worked there for a couple of years 
And my primary project working at the press was to help develop this writing stick project. And what it was, it was a way for publishers, writers, and editors to kind of come together and talk about some of these issues. Like, what's the appropriate terminology? What kind of tense should I be using? Like, it could be as simple as that or as broad as, okay what does this mean if we're publishing this person over that person mm -hmm. and what kind of things are involved in that. It was a really good experience for sure. It was interesting because I, I started having conversations with the press about what it's like and how elders should be treated, you know? And that's a conversation that I don't think we've ever had with, or the press has ever really thought about. I'm not sure. I don't think I, cause I can't speak for them, but... It was really great because we had a, a big group of elders there and they basically just grounded the entire conference and ceremony. So we started the conference actually at like four in the morning. <laughs> it was a sunrise ceremony. Oh my gosh. So we invited Wilson and we provided, Wilson Bearhead, we provided protocol and we asked him to help us along with the planning of this conference. And the first thing that he said was, yep, we're gonna do a sunrise ceremony. Okay, what is that? What? <laughs> so yeah, we'll get we'll get we'll get all the teepees set up and we'll have it all. And oh gosh, what are we in for? But it was honestly, it was the best thing that could have happened. It was the best way to start a conference that I've ever experienced because you're grounding it in ceremony. And I don't know if you know, I can't remember you there, Carla, for the. Sunrise ceremony? No, no I okay. was flying in from out of town. Oh, darn it. <laughs> okay, well, what essentially it was is um, we had two large teepees set up outside of Pemina Hall. One teepee was for men and one was for women, and there was a female elder and a male elder in each one. And we had uh, a pipe ceremony. It was really beautiful. And so there was, in ours, we had maybe about 30 to 40 women in there and we just got to connect with each other on an emotional level and that was something that I'd never seen in a conference before mm -hmm. because afterwards everyone was just instant friends so mm -hmm. it really set a mood of congeniality within that entire I guess the, the entire couple of days mm -hmm. so it was amazing but I mean there was lots of really great um storytellers there too. Richard Von Kemp, I, he's so amazing. He's one of the best storytellers, I, in my opinion. I'm super <laughs> biased, but whatever, he's great. Um, and lots of different authors come in, like Bernice, um, Bernice Half, so it was a cool experience. And there's other conversations too, like just because I'm trying to think about all the technology stuff that we had to work with. As librarians we always want everything to be as open as possible right so we're trying to get things that are being live streamed or recorded all these other things but that actually became really problematic for us and the reason behind that is stories and depending on the story depending on the elder depending on the song anything they shouldn't be recorded so that was a really big hurdle that we had to go over because I don't I don't know we we wanted it to all be recorded and kind of like put in a digital repository so everyone could be involved and it'd be this wonderful amazing thing but then we kind of had to step back and be like is this appropriate? So whose values right? So yeah, we as you mentioned again 
in library school were kind of indoctrinated. We adopt these values, right? Yeah. We, but, and it's we, like bad mouthing lives. I didn't know about meeting it to go out that way. <laughs> but that's, again, they're, they're value systems, right? Yeah. We, we don't even question. Of course, information wants to be free, but what you're describing is a different way of looking at the world and there's a context, there's a reason, right? So uh-huh. stories are told within a context for a purpose to a particular group. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad you bring up this idea because we don't have a lot of tools. There are a handful. And so you know, I thought we talk about this later, we can bring it now. So one project that we know um, maybe in line with some of these um, topics that we're discussing, the Mukurtu um, open source platform, walks the talk, I guess, of not necessarily blindly opening access to everything that's, uh, I guess, preserved or collected within, you know, the website, but having degrees of control. You're right. They're just different ways of looking at the world. And that's that's hard. I think that's hard for us as a profession to have those conversations that... Um, yeah, it's just different way of valuing information and, and what it means to yeah. those who are receiving it. Yeah. And, and I think really, again, illustrates in one way maybe the context that librarianship has come out of overall, which is not necessarily the most inclusive of various worldviews. And, you know, it's traditionally academic in a lot of ways, and it's under a lot of those same pressures. Most likely how we end up getting values like neutrality over everything else or information wants to be free always all the time rather than looking at these more nuanced conversations and different perspectives but we love libraries just yeah. to be clear yeah no i that's the thing though is that like libraries doesn't have to be defined that way yeah that's what's exciting about it is that libraries we can and the role of a librarian i think is getting more and more broad mm-hmm. right so when i think of librarian i think of community I think that's more because I have a public library background, but that's what it, it just makes sense to me. And it, maybe it's even a little bit of my um, Métis roots in there as well. But And one of the other projects, actually, now that I'm thinking about community, is um, I've been working a lot with um, an Indigenous student. His name is Ambrose Cardinal, and he is the most amazing person I've ever met. And... I don't know, we get lots of random emails, hey, think of like, random people phoning you and you're like, okay, sure, let's let's meet up and see where this goes. And it was just one of those rabbit hole projects and he is making this scene and it's called Nana to Wihuin. And that basically means in Cree it's doctoring or healing over a long period of time, day after day. And it's a zine that he's making based off of the medicine wheel. And we actually decided that it would be a really good idea to put it onto a digital platform actually so the online journal software mm-hmm. OJ, i can never remember OJS. the ojs is yeah. i'm like just ojs <laughs> and it was actually really great and I, I don't know if i can name her but sonia betts i i'm gonna give her all these props because i was thinking because i had a conversation with ambrose one day and he was telling me his concerns about putting his zine onto this platform because he's like, well, I don't really want anybody to use it in a way that's tokenistic or inappropriate. And you know what? He has every right to decide those things. And I was kind of getting ready to have this big, large conversation with Sonia, trying to explain to her like, okay, this is, we have to restrict this because we're very much open access there. And she was such, like, she is such a good ally. She was so great. She's like, yeah, let's do it. Here's all the traditional knowledge labels that we can put on it. 
and I think it might even be the first, um, first, I guess, I, I don't, like, it's a, because it's an e-zine, I guess it would be, but it would be the first thing that our library has had to tackle with these traditional knowledge labels, mm-hmm. which I think is really exciting. So the fact that she's totally open-minded and we're all kind of, it's just making things happen in a way that it, it makes sense culturally, right? So it's, I think it's pretty sweet. It's really exciting. So, yeah, it just ties yeah. into that Merkutu piece yeah. <laughs> because that's the, na- the labels that we were looking and discussing. Mm-hmm. Right, so incorporating that into the systems and tools we use, mm-hmm. right? And I wonder how various library users will react and you know how that education piece will happen in terms of like the more of these types of objects the more that becomes part of the norm right Mm -hmm. to some degree library users don't have access to everything right they are they are aware that they have to wait and just by virtue of not being able to afford to buy everything and you know sharing but the collections that are I guess culturally not sensitive, but reflect a certain culture or expectations or they're only meant to be shared within a certain context. There's not a lot of them right now, or at least maybe they're not all digital. But as as they grow, I, I just wonder what a contemporary library, library of the future, uh, will look like with with all of these, you know, protocols and ways of sort of organizing information in a, in a different way. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud here. I'm yeah, sorry. okay. At okay. a point here. <laughs> I'm going to our libraries of the future segment of the podcast. <laughs> just, just drones, all drones. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, you know, and that's something that I think about a lot, too. It's like, okay, how do we move forward? But honestly, I think it, it's more, and this is just my own opinion, is that I think we really need to hone in more on relationship development. Because, I mean, we automate so many things nowadays that... And even with, we have a a personal librarian program, which is essentially, you can email this librarian all the time, but, and have access to them, ask them all your questions, but with an Indigenous framework, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Because you need to have that personal conversation, you need to see a face. (laughs) And the more that you develop a relationship, the more that you think about them, right? So, for example, now that I've developed that relationship with Ambrose, like, oh yeah, he's doing this project, or you think about them, right? Or I think about someone doing this particular research project on augmented reality. I'm like, wow, this this little article would be really fantastic for them. I'm just going to email them because you're constantly thinking about them, mm-hmm. right? And it's on your mind. So, sir, you mentioned the um, personal librarian model may not work within the Indigenous context. You mean uh, like having digital relate or email yeah. or chat or whatever, like those tools? Yeah, yeah. email, emailing, just, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, sometimes when you're using chat, yeah, you need a quick answer or a quick conversation. Chat is amazing. But I find that more and more when I work with Indigenous folks and other people within the university system is that they just want someone to talk to and sometimes even consults they don't end up being consults it's just like I, I don't know I've seen a lot of tears over the last mm-hmm. year in the consult room which is fine like sometimes you just say or you need someone to understand you and you need someone to just have empathy like those soft skills human needs yeah yeah, yeah. I, I know we always like pump on the hard skills like we need to know all these software mm-hmm. programs but it's it shouldn't be all about that. I think we should be using the hard skills to complement our soft skills. So so what you're describing is that pressure, and I think we've talked about in previous episodes, is on one hand, 
you know, transactional nature of like serving more, right? Yeah. And so what does digital, I guess, tools allow us to do is you can receive 200 emails in theory. Doesn't mean you will be able to deal with them at the level of, you know, professional expectation and sort of your own personal you would be satisfied right with I have served I have helped this person to an extent and so I'm really pleased that you bring this up because there is a physical limit to how many human relationships you can have right Mm to yeah to see people face to face and you know you you think about them as humans we have limits none of us can remember you know a thousand people and so it's just, it's a different way of, I guess, doing work. Mm-hmm. And we, we've talked about labor, right? So we've talked about emotional labor, but also we need more librarians if we truly want to serve the community to an extent that is important and valuable. You can't just put that on the back of, you know, five, ten people. Yeah. So it's, um, there's a lot of issues that begin to become evident when we talk about just, yeah, different ways of valuing work. Exactly. Well, there's even, well, when you think about that, I just, <laughs> my mind automatically goes back to time. And mm. I'm thinking specifically about all these government grants because the TRC is such a hot, quote unquote, hot topic <laughs> with reconciliation <laughs> with a capital W. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Wreck. It's just reconciliation is turning into this nasty, dirty word, which is unfortunate because it has such a beauty behind it. But um, yeah, no, it's just taking that step back and time, like because time, what we're working with, and we're wanting to do all these really cool projects, and we're getting these granting schemes or grants and things from the government, but usually those have timelines, mm-hmm. right? You have one year to complete this project. And if you don't have relationships already in place, it could take up to four years to develop the relationship where you could be at a state where you can start the project. So that just makes things extremely complicated. So then you're spending the grant money in the first year just developing relationships. And you're like, well, what am I going to do for the next four years? Because it's an ongoing relationship, right? It has to be a back and forth. Otherwise, it's just you know and that's one thing that I talk about a lot with because indigenous research methodology and ethics go hand in hand because it's everybody everybody can talk about or do in indigenous anythings right anyone can write an indigenous graphic novel anyone can do indigenous research but it's all about being appropriate being respectful and also being responsible and what does that even mean so you have to be responsible to that relationship so for example if I was to ask uh, one of my colleagues for an interview or something like that I can't just go in and interview them and then just drop them off the face of the planet because then what does that where does that leave them right you're just using them at that point Mm -hmm. which gets really complicated really fast I'm amazed that indigenous communities continue to work with researchers because how many times have we heard and uh, we can see it Mm -hmm. you go in you collect you walk away and leave them be right so it's that model may work for objects in science so that model has a historical precedent right it emerged out of a context of european sort of way of doing knowledge versus what you're describing yeah, you can't just do that with communi- with human beings, right? So yeah. 
it, it will rarely fit within a year's <laughs> length. Well, and, and I mean, thinking about, you know, doing any kind of tech project, you're coming up with like a project plan and you are, you know, following maybe specific ways of doing those project plans and they have very strict timelines and they have very strict deliverables and it's all about outputs. And when you're applying for a grant, you're demonstrating that timeline and those outputs in order to make the case that you will actually deliver something that's worthwhile yeah. for the, the funding body to, to justify having given you that money to do it. But you're, you're absolutely right when the whole grant structure is set up in a way that doesn't allow the right methods to happen, you're just at a total disconnect. Well, it's not even just grant structure. It could be even like dissertations, mm -hmm. really, because at the end of the at the end of your long PhD program, you're expected to write this gigantic masterpiece, which is awesome and great. But if you have a responsibility, which we do, like I have a responsibility to my community, I need to represent them in a way that makes sense to me and also to them. But if I would be to research with my own community way back in Manitoba, like, I would want them to be with me on this project, the entire process. But if I were to hand them this gigantic stack of papers at the end of the day, they'd be like, what are you doing with this? <laughs> like, mm. I don't want to read that, which is why things like podcasting or zines or thinking outside of the box in terms of how do you actually represent information is really important for Indigenous communities. Like there was actually a student that I met with last month and he's doing amazing work. He's actually working with drones. It's very cool. So he's working with drones because a lot of elders, I mean elders are also elderly, so they can't go to the places in the land that they're spiritually connected to all the time. So he's using drones to kind of go out, scope the landscape, and then bring it back to show the elders within the community. And then he's videotaping that relationship as they're watching the video. And he's going to create a documentary instead of this giant research paper so he can give back to the community in a way that makes sense to them. Right? So before you even step into the community, you have to ask yourself, should I even go there for one? Do I have relationships there? Or um, what am I going to be giving back to them? Because if it's not a reciprocal relationship, what is it? Right? That project sounds fascinating. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> I know, my eyes got all starry when he was telling me about this. Wow. So cool. you, you kind of mentioned before we started recording um, how you kind of switch trajectories from your like tech, tech focus as a library student and and in previous work. I guess I'm kind of curious about what that switch was like in your mind to have to make kind of a choice between two tra trajectories. But how you're maybe noticing incorporating technology and is it just a matter of fact that it's going to still be a part of your work or a part of your Mm -hmm. um, your library experience? Like, how do you see technology fitting in now to what you're doing? Right now, technology, I, I'm not going to get away from it. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's a part of it, and it's so complementary, it's so necessary. But the reason, actually, I, I started out going to library school because I wanted to be a public librarian. I was really interested in maker spaces. I really love robotics especially Lego robotics, they're my favorite because mm -hmm. they're so fun, right? And it's necessary. So it's a fun way to introduce people 
into mm-hmm. these types of technologies. Mm-hmm. And I used to run a technology program at the branch that I was working at. And um, a lot of times the parents would come in and say, this is why I want my kid to be here because I need to learn Python and I don't know what the hell that even means. And at least this time they're, they're seeing it, right? But when I got into library school and I was given this indigenous internship, I, previous to that, I never, ever once (laughs) self-identified. Never. Um, So being a part of this Indigenous internship, you're kind of, not slapped in the face, but it's just there, Mm -hmm. and you can't ignore it anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the way that I was raised was I was taken away from our Métis culture, and we were basically raised in a, a very whitewashed community, and that was purposeful. So everything was done for a reason because we're Métis, we look a specific way, we can hide. Hiding in plain sight is what you might hear that from a lot of Métis folks. But um, doing this internship was the first time that I was forced to self-identify in front of the universe, the world, and I wasn't ready at that time. So it took a lot of years to kind of realize what was going on and what I needed to do and by the time I was ready to graduate I was still on the cusp like oh I really I'm really still interested in makerspaces because they're awesome they're really fun but like there was something inside that was like okay it's almost like you're trying to find out who you are as a human as a person and how you fit into this larger Canadian history this larger context Um, So it was more that draw that kind of brought me out of the public library sphere and into academic librarianship and into um, Indigenous librarianship because if I have these questions, everyone has these questions. And because there's so little Indigenous librarians out there that who are you going to ask, right? And a lot of times, like, I might be the only person that someone would know. And if they can't ask me, then who else is there, right? So I've just been in this weird, very complicated position trying to navigate between both worlds, but they complement each other in more ways than um, I think I would have thought or imagined because there's lots of online education resources and because um, it's indigeneity is just blowing up. It's in this really interesting space right now. So people are wanting to have more open access and they're wanting to spread the knowledge. There's this MOOC and it's called Indigenous Canada and it was this fantastic project that was created by the Faculty of Native Studies and it's the number one online course right now. So many people are taking it, right? So I guess it's more like spreading the word and then there's, there's things like Native Twitter. Native Twitter is a wonderful, wonderful place. Have you ever heard of native Twitter? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh my gosh. So you ask anybody, how do you get your information? And typically indigenous folks, including myself, they'll say Facebook and Twitter. That's where I get it. And a lot of that has to do with um, the publication industry and how everything's really, um, there's a lot of barriers and things like that, right? But in Twitter, it's instant information instantly, and there's almost like this online community there. So during, or what happened with Colton Bushy, I found myself going to mm-hmm. Twitter to find other people that were mourning just like I was. And it's just this massive support system that's really, really powerful. So I got all of my information from it. Well, I mean, you have to be, like, you have to be, um, I guess, know what's good and what's bad. You still have to have that librarian mindset, but 
but still, like it, it's it complements indigeneity in such a great way that not many people often think about. Because usually, when you think about indigenous initiatives or things, you think about reservations and things like that. But that's not true. Like there's so many urban indigenous folks, right? Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, the, the reason for the popularity of those stories on social media is often excluded from official media, right? So mm-hmm. the tools are out there, and the communities are huge, right? We, yeah. We know that, as you said, urban indigenous people use Facebook every day. Like yeah. we, we see them at the library, so we know what a role it plays. But you're right, there's also a lot of bad info too. So it's um, like our, our work doesn't end. I also want to comment how, uh, you know, you mentioned sort of your, we're all still pretty young. We're still pretty young librarians. It's like the journey is not over. It doesn't yeah. end. But, you know, we certainly heard this from professionals across you know, Alberta, how they had this one idea and then life takes you on its own journey and how this program you know indigenous librarianship didn't exist it's it's a i think we're very lucky to have that right to have this opportunity that's pretty new Mm -hmm. so uh, i'm glad that it sort of let you think about new things and and of course have that conversation impact on real people yeah totally if i can ask i guess on on that note something that I think about a lot. Um, so and on this podcast, you know, we're, we're loosely interested in technology, not the only thing, but primarily tech, because as you said, it has a role in all of our lives, right? We didn't talk about stereotypes, but where you're describing, like contemporary Indigenous peoples are just like all of us, right? <laughs> all use tools, like using drones, using things, like the, yeah. the, that's the life we all lead, right? So, but how do we incorporate strategies or values that are alternative to the dominant culture right so um, how do we build that into our technology and I and I realize it's a lot of pressure to put on you as this you know (laughs) by no means do you represent you know the whole group but this is something I'm interested in right so yes we understand that our information systems, our tools come out of a certain context and they're, they're not neutral. But how do we build new systems and tools and how do we use them in a way that's sensitive? I, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but that's something that I'm interested in. So do, do you have any thoughts on, you know, what, what do you mean, like how do you do indigenous librarianship with technology that's of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very good question. It's a big question. It, it really depends on what kind of librarianship you're talking. I mean, indigenous librarianship, I, it's such a big thing. And you can see it in absolutely every facet of librarianship, special collections, um, public libraries, academic libraries, little tiny baby libraries that don't even realize that they are libraries, you know? Mm-hmm. And I say that because... I mean, one other thing that we've kind of been doing is that we've been using technology to help out um, little libraries around campus. So there is a library with the ATEP program, which is the Aboriginal Teacher and Education Program, and they have this like really cool library of different books, gray literature, all things like that. So they kind of asked us to say, hey, can you... like?" do something with this so we can like you know lend it out and, and do it in an ef- efficient effective way and we're like yes but how do you want it to be done and it's just that conversation and consultation and 
we told them, we say, well, how do you want it to be organized? And they basically said, no, we don't want Dewey. We don't want Library of Congress because, as we know, like, they're not the most inclusive of things. <laughs> so we started having to try to think outside of the box. And by outside of the box, I mean, like, completely outside, like, including conversations with Camille Callison. She is at, um, she's in Manitoba. She's fantastic. And including conversations with the Waywall Library in BC with Kim Lawson and Melissa um, Cherry, because they they've actually created this different classification system. But the one that they create is, is entirely it's mainly science focused. So we're trying to I guess reinvent classification for this tiny little library, but also using things like Tiny Cat. So we're using TinyCat to make it really simple and really easy so that their students can kind of come in, check out their books, blah, 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 and get out. So I, I don't think they realize how complicated a thing that they asked us to do, but um, but it's it's been really fascinating and really fun. So just creating new subject headings that are actually appropriate and reflective of how you identify yourself. And... Um, what classifications even mean? Like, why do we categorize these based on topics? And why is it that Indigenous is only in this one sense that is largely framed around, like, static cultures and less living in the past? <laughs> like, obviously I'm here. Mm -hmm. I use the present tense, you know, those types of things, right? But I, that's one way definitely that I can see technology coming in is being that extra helping hand so that they can do things and do things the way that they want. Like, we don't have to be involved. Like, I know that that's language revitalization is a really big thing right now. Mm. But in all honesty, like, as librarians, do we, should we have a role in that? I don't know. That's a good question. Do they want us to help them out with that, right? And that that's a conversation that needs to be had with each individual community, right? I mean, <laughs> I think with language revitalization or languages in general, I know the conversation is more shaped around preservation because right. preservationists, mm -hmm. right? It's just how we think because yeah. we want to keep everything. But when you're preserving something, you're basically admitting and telling people that this language and this culture is dead <laughs> and it's not going to be evolving anytime other than this point. Mm -hmm. So here it is in this little box. There you go. So... Yeah, sorry, I guess I'm just, like, looping around into random different things. No, but, <laughs> but what you're describing is no different from the themes that we've covered so far, right? Yeah. Which is have a human conversation, ask about the why. Like, all of those are contexts, and again, we do that. We try to do that every day, but bring that back or make sure that it's part of the process, right? Yeah. Because it's so easy to just apply the tool and be uncritical of all the, I guess, baggage and assumptions. And, you know, as we talked about with email and chat, it enables some things, but it also disables some experiences, right? So that's certainly something I'm interested in technology, but it's so easy to forget that or to let, um, you know, these measurable goals come to the forefront versus the why. Like, what's yeah. the purpose of this? And I would hope that these, you know, the workers you call them the little libraries, <laughs> often they're not valued, right? They're so easily forgotten and so easily marginalized. But the, the more you do it, hopefully it um, builds systems for other likely small libraries that exist exactly. elsewhere. Too. And actually, like, that conversation, well, I'm speaking for my colleague Sheila here, but because um, she's doing the decolonizing description project at the U of A, and... The way that we're not doing it in a silo or the way that the project is framed, it's not 
just the U of A doing it. It's actually a conversation with all libraries within Alberta. <laughs> so it is entirely community-based and all relationship-based. So we're going out to the tribal colleges because we have a relationship with them already and they're kind of connecting us to community that way. So it's not it's not a single conversation. It's it's actually a project that people all across Canada and North America are invested in mm -hmm. and people are putting out that work to kind of collaborate all together. So we're not just doing these random little things, tiny little things in one corner, right? So if we all take a step back and think about it and do it right the first time, then we're not going to damage relationships later on. Because I know that sometimes we get excited and we jump in and we, we're not even fully prepared. Like we don't know protocol, which is protocol is the bread and butter of Indigenous culture. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't know protocol and you don't know how to interact with elders, like that's a huge red flag. And that's where you need to think, okay, maybe we should step back. Because if you destroy a relationship with an elder or within the community, like, it's going to be tough as nails to get back in. Or not to get back in, but to, to reconnect, I guess. <laughs> this is like, that's, that's a very guilty thing for larger institutions to do. And I'm, mm -hmm. I guess I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here. But <laughs> I know you, you were excited. You had so many questions, and I feel like we... I feel like I could talk for, like, three more days. Yeah. <laughs> At the least, or I will just come and follow you around all day and watch all of the amazing things that you're doing, because I, I'm so blown away by how many different, like, aspects of librarianship mm -hmm. you're able to work on, but mm -hmm. also just in ways that are so beautifully revolutionary large and small mm -hmm. like I just is fascinating fascinating and heartwarming <laughs> yeah yeah that's the thing like we're working within a system that wasn't made for indigenous folks but we can work within it and we can make it better right like if the if you admit your mistakes that's when that's when really cool things can happen right I hope we haven't been too you know, pressure to for you to you know have these definitive answers and I, and I hope so far what I'm getting from this conversation is that so it's a progress right it's mm -hmm. it doesn't end you know just like relationships you can't just like cut and evaluate and walk away like it's, yeah. it's a it's a process so. it's a process and that you know what the first step is always admitting you know I don't know I have no idea I sometimes I don't I guess I don't realize why people don't admit that a lot of times maybe it's just some sort of thing in their program <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. but as soon as you admit that you don't know then you can move on and actually learn something meaningful right so that's always that first step well we're very happy that we were, were able to chat with you today and I'm, I'm, maybe there'll be a volume <laughs> too you know the, there's so many questions um that I think are percolating in our minds. So yeah, thank you again for taking the time. Yeah, thanks. no, thanks for inviting me. This has been fun. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you.